Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good morning or good afternoon, fellows. This is Mike Herring, and today I have the pleasure of spending a few minutes with Houston Gordon. So, Houston, I'm going to take every bit of 45, 50 minutes if you have that long, and I'm going to free range a bit, go all over the place, kind of like a general district court or small claims court hearing, if that's okay. That's great. All right, perfect. Let's start with easy stuff, really easy softballs. You attended University of Tennessee two times, is that right? (laughs) Right. I attended the University of Tennessee at Martin, which is a campus of the state university, and I graduated from there in 1968 and then went to law school in Knoxville at the College of Law. Okay. And if memory serves me correctly, you are from a long line of Tennessee grads, is that Uh right? I am. uh, In fact, my grandmother, before UT Martin was a college of the system, she rode a mule from Yuma, Tennessee to Martin, Tennessee to get a teaching certificate at Hall Moody College. My father went there in the 30s when it was a University of Tennessee junior college. And then my older sister, older brother, and younger brother and I all went to the University of Tennessee at Martin. After my older sister graduated, she went to the University of Tennessee Pharmacy School in Memphis. And my older brother graduated and then went to Clemson and got a graduate degree in entomology. And my younger brother graduated there and went to UT Knoxville and was a member of the first veterinary class at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. I have had nieces and nephews to graduate there, so we are, uh, our blood runs orange. Yeah, runs orange. It sounds like the Gordons are a fixture family, sort of an institutional family at UT. In fact, my wife was the first female president of the University of Tennessee's College of Pharmacy class as a student. Wow. All right. So I have to confess, you can't reference a mule and us <laughs> not linger on that a second. So I want to go back. Let's wind things back a bit to your upbringing. How on earth were there mules in your life, Houston? Yes, I'm probably the only lawyer you've ever interviewed who knows how to plow a mule. Yep. Yes, you are, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I grew up on a farm. My parents were, for the time and the place, well-educated, but we lived in the country. I spent the first six years of my life without indoor plumbing, and we made our living scratching the earth. That continued until my dad became an extension agent for the University of Tennessee, which is an advisor to farmers. UT is a land-grant university, and so part of their mission is to provide services to rural communities. And so growing up, I lived in rural communities from one end of Tennessee to the other. That distinguishes you in another regard. I can't say that I've interviewed anyone yet who shared the experience of six years with no indoor plumbing. Well, it's not something I wish to repeat. No, I hear you. So, you know, I did my recon, and I know that you have enjoyed lots of different jobs in the course of your life. In addition to being a successful lawyer and trial lawyer, 
My understanding is you've been a truck driver, a pipeline worker, an electrician's helper, and a farm worker. And I imagine farm work beyond your farm. Is that right? Well, most of the work that I did, unless we were helping other farmers haul hay, would have been on my dad's place or on the place he was renting. But the other jobs I had was how I paid my way through school. And I also, when I went to law school, I became a clerk, a law clerk. But when someone has described you as a former pipeline worker, is that literally a pipeline as in a conduit for fluids? Texas Gas Company has a substation here in Tipton County, Tennessee, while I was in college and then in law school, they put in what they call jet engines to transmit the natural gas, which comes from Texas and Louisiana here. And at that substation, they had to run a pipeline. And my job generally was kind of a maintenance guy during the summer, mowing the lawn and that sort of thing. But they paid more if you worked helping them attach the pipeline to the engine house. And my job was to take the, what I called tar. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it was the deep black, really hot material that you put the seam around where the two pipes came together. And I did that one summer. Yeah. Huh. So Houston, when you and I shared a few moments in an earlier call, you were kind enough to share a bit of insight on your family, and you described your family as storytellers. And I'm listening to you describe some of your early life's experiences, and I can't help but wonder whether those experiences sort of inform the stories that you and your family tell or have told, and more specifically, the stories and the way you relate to juries. Without any question, my mother had five brothers and four sisters, and part of my growing up years were spent in Meigs County, Tennessee, and my dad had three brothers and one sister, and we lived in East Tennessee. We lived close to my mother's father, and when the family would gather, they'd sit around and tell stories. And I loved sitting and listening to the stories. And then my grandfather had a country store and people would gather there and tell stories. And so I grew up listening to stories and we lived in rural Tennessee. And one of the places you gathered for social life was the church. And that was a place where stories were told. And I've told young lawyers the best closing arguments I ever heard were from preachers. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at people like Martin Luther King or Billy Graham or a host of other people. I'm trying to think of someone you would recognize. I mean, as a child, I remember seeing Billy Graham on TV. And just last week or week before, I attended a wonderful MLK program where, to your point, the best speakers were pastors. I mean, just hands down, incredible. Well, they appealed to the better part of our beings. They appealed to those things that uplift us as opposed to those things that, you know, yelling and screaming and criticizing and that sort of thing is not what they do. And they do it very well. And I learned in the pit, as we call it around here in the trial work, is that when you're placing people in the jury, you're calling on them to be the best they've ever been. Because in my opinion, the only place on God's green earth that the little people 
left out and left behind, the injured, the maimed, the accused, have a chance of being treated fairly is in front of 12 good and honest people who swear they'll do the right thing. And that's kind of the approach that I've taken for 50 years. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a second in the context of storytelling, because, you know, I've been present for family events when there's always a person who stands out as the storyteller, not necessarily the family historian, but the person who is best at recounting events and occasions. When you're in trial, though, the goal is not so much recreational and social, right? At some point, your story has to be persuasive. So if, as you taught younger lawyers, that the best way to do a closing argument is to tell a story, how do you draw the line at being persuasive versus sort of just being sociable? Persuasiveness comes from trust. My opinion is that if you have established trust with the jury from the get-go, from the time that you do your voir dire, from the time that you make the opening statement, from the way you walk in the courtroom, the way you treat people as you're going in, if they see that you are trustworthy and then you're honest with them, they will follow what you're trying to tell, which is you're trying to tell your client's side of this story. And whether it's defending a criminal accused or a spastic quadriplegic child, they each are the story. They are the ones who you have the obligation to present to the people their side of this controversy. And every controversy has at least two sides and sometimes multiple sides. But in my experience, I've represented people I've never represented, except on rare occasions, corporations or, and never represented an insurance company. So the people are, you know, the ones who have the broken limbs or the catastrophic injury or the dead husband or wife or who are accused of murder facing the death penalty, they are people. And the people who are deciding the case are sitting in the jury and they are listening to try to determine, as they've sworn to do, where the truth lies. You know, I've had to catch myself over the years and certainly observed it on the part of other lawyers just getting caught up in the performance. That is, indulge me, you know, some slang that just sort of drinking my own Kool-Aid when I'm in the well of the courtroom and being a bit too impressed by myself. While my opponent, to your point, wins because he or she develops trust through humility. I wonder if that's something that comes natural or if that's something you sort of learn. What do you think? I think you learn it by experience and you learn it by being knocked around. I mean, you know, all of us trial lawyers know how to strut. But we strut because we start talking about our achievements or we start talking about our record judgments or we start talking about the acquittal we've obtained rather than recognizing on the front end. And, you know, I've had a lot of a lot of really good lawyers who practice with me through the years. And one of the things we insist upon from the beginning, it is not my case. How many lawyers have you heard at social gatherings or even CLE programs talk about my case? It's not my case. It's little Billy Mills case or it's Jonathan Reynolds case or it's Alice Simpson's case. It's not my case. It's their problem that we're here to solve, not make me look good. Yeah. 
I love your reduction of it all to strutting. I never would have landed on that term, but I think it's so apt. All you've got to do is be around a bunch of trial lawyers, and we all know how to strut. What we don't realize is that, and I just have had the wonderful experience being invited to what they call T-Ball here in Tennessee, which is the Tennessee Bar Association Law Leadership School or Conference. And for the last 18 or 19, maybe 20 years, I've been asked to come and talk to those young lawyers. And one of the things that I repeat to them over and over again is, number one, it's not your case. And number two, see people and practice seeing people. Practice talking to the checkout person around here. It's at Walmart or at Kroger. Learn how when you go to the courthouse or when you're in the venue, speak to people and actually see the people who are making things work. Pay attention. And if we see people, people pick up on that. This is so much fun for me because I'm, I'm just imagining the dynamic in voir dire. And voir dire varies by jurisdiction. But if you're in a jurisdiction where the court allows you to engage with the jurors, one of the things you're trying to do early on is connect with them and let them know that you see them, that you are listening. You're not just going through a list of questions. You're actually interested in them as people. Is that your sense? Absolutely, because the people that are going to sit there in judgment of your client, the person that you're there representing, you need to know who they are as best you can and know how they react to things. So you engage them in void dire with not yes or no questions, but engage them with questions that will bring out who they are and how they think and what they feel like. And, you know, I joke about it, but it's true. Having the feeling is more important than having the facts or the law. Yeah. You know, you mentioned T-ball, and I want to draw your attention not so much to T-ball, but to an occasion when I believe you were a commencement speaker. And a couple of times. It, well, okay. You've probably done that a few times, right? But I want to read you some language from one of your speeches. You said to the student, I urge you, graduates, to reject tyranny over your minds. When we allow others to control what we think, when we condone and participate in anger and division, when we refuse to be accountable for our own lives and our own destinies, when we refuse to accept others, when we refuse to be accountable for our mistakes, when we allow ourselves to be seduced by false claims of easy fixes, we accept the lie and succumb to tyranny. Those are some heavy, heavy statements, Houston. I mean, how did that go over and what was on your heart when you said those things? And this was from a 2016 speech, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, a while ago. And I guess I need to tell a story. In 1971, I was appointed as a JAG officer I got out of law school in May of 1970, and in September of 1971, as a JAG officer in the Washington, D.C. area, I was appointed to handle the appeal of Lieutenant William L. Calley, Jr., who had been convicted of mass murder in Vietnam. In doing that, I had the distinct, I wouldn't call it pleasure, but telling a story, I had the distinct pleasure of having the Washington Post write an editorial on December the 7th, 1972, 
saying that I had justified mass murder and besmirched the United States Army and the military justice system by taking a misquoted and misstated statement from an article written in the Washington Evening Star, and they latched on to it. I was 20-something years old, and all of a sudden I'm on the editorial page saying that I'm justifying mass murder. One of the things that I did while I was trying to represent Lieutenant Kelly, which was I can't tell you how pressure was for a young lawyer, young army officer, to be appointed to defend someone who was a pariah. He either was a ghoul in most of America's mind, or he was one of our boys just doing what he was told to do in others. But nevertheless, it was a horrible experience. And then to wake up on a Saturday morning and read that editorial kind of set me back a little bit more than a little bit. But I had spent a lot of time when I would finish working on the brief and researching and running down witnesses the Army couldn't find and that sort of thing. I couldn't sleep, so I would drive down to the Jefferson Memorial, which is a beautiful spot in Washington. And I was there so many times that late at night, early morning, that the park police didn't even ask me who I was. They would say, well, hello, Captain, how are you? And I would sit at the Jefferson Memorial and look out over the reflecting pool. And as I was sitting there, I looked up around the rotunda and it had a Jefferson quote. And the Jefferson quote was, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility toward every form of tyranny over the minds of men. I started thinking about that. And quite frankly, as I told that commencement audience, That became my personal motto. Tyranny over the mind results in every bad thing that we can think of. People are misled by the lies. They're caused to fear because of lies about dangers that don't exist or that are magnified. Disagreement is the very essence of intelligent thought. Without disagreement, we'd still be walking around with no electricity and building fires and wearing animal skins. So this idea of tyranny over the mind has been a passion of mine since that time, because I think, quite frankly, the editorial was the result of tyranny over the mind. So that's where that came from. That's a long story to answer a short question. But I can see why you've been so successful at your lawyering. You are a good storyteller. So let's linger here for a second. If you are able to watch the news, and I have to confess, there are a lot of days I just can't watch the news. I can't take it. But if you are a regular consumer of the news, mindful of Thomas Jefferson's quote and mindful of your comments to the students, I mean, you must cringe sometimes when you, one, listen at the way we are fed opinion and thought in an effort to shape our minds, and then two, just how polarized the news, which used to be factual, I imagine, has become. There's no question. It bothers me and my wife and my family and my friends that I've grown up with and people I've practiced law with and been best friends with since law school. And the interesting thing about that is my dad was a West Tennessee Democrat. My mother was an East Tennessee Republican. I have a first cousin who is a staunch Republican and very well known. And he and I have been best friends since we were toddlers. 
I was the 1996 Democratic nominee who was crazy enough to run against Fred Thompson. And he was friends with Fred Thompson. In fact, he worked with Howard Baker and was Reagan's White House counsel. Long story short is he and I have discussed politics since we were toddlers. We have never had an argument. In fact, when he was a senior in college and I was in law school, he roomed with us. And in the house we lived in, there was a Republican whose father was commissioner of finance for the Republican governor, a Democrat whose father was the commissioner of corrections in the state of Tennessee for a Democratic governor, a good friend of mine who is a Democrat, and he and I were involved in Democratic politics and working in campaigns, and the others were working against us. And we lived together, but we never thought about it. It was how do we serve our country and what policies do we think are best? Well, we've gotten away with that now. It's who can scream the loudest, deprecate the other the most, and demonize. Well, all that is is tyranny. Yeah. Yeah, it's scary. And I understand that you've done criminal work. Am I correct? You have both prosecuted and defended? Yeah, and I won't dwell on it too long, but I prosecuted a serial killer and I represented a mass murderer. And I just finished up an acquittal in what started out to be a death penalty case. So, in fact, the last trial I did was five and a half weeks Yeah. And I do want to talk about some of those cases. But before we do, you know, just yesterday I was having lunch with the dean of the UVA Law School, which is, you know, my alma mater. And I was telling her, because I'm a former prosecutor, that I'm concerned that there appears to be no space, at least in the minds of the students, for prosecutors and defense lawyers, that there is this disturbing trend among law students that if you prosecute, you are selling out. You have bought into a model or framework that is inherently unfair, punitive, and incapable of any modicum of justice. And so here's my question. When you engage with students, Are you seeing the same sort of polarization in their minds that you see in the broader media and politics? Well, I'm not as engaged with students, but the answer to that is yes. And the reason for it is social media where you get, you know, rather than getting and you mentioned it earlier, rather than getting the factual news, we get packaged messages. And it doesn't matter if it's MSNBC or Fox, there is a tone to the message that's sent. And the guests that are called on are those who reinforce what issues are on one side or the other. And that's not what lawyers should be doing. That's not what people who are involved in trials are supposed to be looking for. We're looking for justice. The prosecutor who goes in with the idea that I am going to push this political agenda shouldn't be a prosecutor. The prosecutor goes in to search for justice and to make the call that, no, I am not going to over prosecute this case is as important as prosecuting those who are guilty to the max. The idea of justice is the idea of fairness. Where's the truth? All right, here's the truth. And we have this thing in Memphis that just happened the last week, which they're going to issue the video late today, I think, 
But the prosecutors there stepped up and said, wait a minute, this shouldn't happen. And we'll wait to see what facts come out. But the idea of the adversary system is that you get the best argument on one side and the best argument on the other side, and both sides have their own preconceived notions. But you do it in a fair way that allows the fact finders to determine where the facts are. You don't start out with the idea that I'm going to run over you like a truck. You start out with the idea we're searching for the truth here. My wife and known better half is a self-avowed news junkie. And I get under her skin in many ways, but one of them is the age of commentators. And so I'm eager to hear the headline. And as soon as the anchor person says, and now let's jump to our panel, I change the channel. And it just infuriates her because she's addicted. And I get it. She's smarter than I, but she's addicted to the commentating and I just can't take it. I really don't want to hear what four people think I should think. I just want to get the fact and draw my own conclusion. And that's why, you know, early on when you had the Edward R. Murrells or the Walter Cronkites or the David Brinkley's, you got the news. You did not get the news. And now let's have a panel to analyze the news, much of which we don't know yet. My wife and I tend to watch the same channels, but we switch back and forth to look at, see what the other groups are saying. And last night on all of them, they were talking about what happened in Memphis and they were speculating, well, what do you think this means? And what do you think that means? And how does that affect this? And they don't know what the facts are. And it's done every single night. I don't watch it in the mornings, but I know it's done every single night. I don't know where we get back to the idea that as, and I'm, I tease my cousin, I quote Republicans sometimes more than I do Democrat, but Howard Baker used to say, you know, the other fellow might be right. Yeah, I like that. You know, before we turn to some of your other work, I do want to go back to Lieutenant Callie and the Milai incident. If you are at liberty, I have a sense of how your representation of Lieutenant Callie affected you. And my sense is it had a profoundly burdensome impact on you. What's your recollection of how the process, the incident, how it all affected Lieutenant Callie, if you can share that with us? I can. In fact, I am going back and forth with after writing on this and messing with it for over 50 years, I'm going back and forth with an editor on a book I hope to have out in the not too far distant future. But Lieutenant Cowley was a five foot three inch, 109 pound second lieutenant who graduated 667th out of a class of 732 in high school. He should have never been an officer, and he acknowledges he shouldn't have been an officer, but someone encouraged him to go to OCS, and this was back when Robert McNamara had the Project 100,000, and in 1967, there were more second lieutenants in military, army types, marine types, anybody who did combat types going through OCS in 1967 than there had been in all of the years of the war in Vietnam combined before that. There was this upsurge, Westmoreland calling for more troops. We ended up at the end of 1967, beginning of 1968, with a half a million combat troops in Vietnam. Well, Cali was caught up in that. 
He was not trained as he should have been, and the Army acknowledged it, that he wasn't trained. He found himself at the vortex of this horrible happening in the village of Songmi, sub-hamlet of Mylai 4, and he was one of more than almost 300 people who were shooting and killing people that day, and he ends up, because of Seymour Hersey's articles, being at the vortex of this outrageous event that happened while Nixon's Mylai committee reasoned, and that's now public, that they wanted to keep the responsibility at the lowest level. And when I was going through basic training in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, my drill sergeant called me off at the end of my time there, and he said, Houston, it's the first time he called me Houston. He called me a lot of other things before that. <laughs> but he said, Houston, I want to tell you, son, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, excrement rolls downhill until it hits a second lieutenant in this man's army, and don't you ever forget it. And that's rode with me all the time during the time I was representing Cali and others. Yeah, you know, I've never served in the military and really have no idea what it must be like to carry out a mission, much less combat. But I imagine, you know, an incident like Milai's, as I pronounce it, I mean, that must have stuck with him, right? I mean, if haunted is the right word, I just don't know how he got on. Still does. Still does. He's in bad health now, but it still does. And yeah, it haunts him. But the thing about it is he testified at the court-martial what I was taught and what I was trained to do is to carry out the orders of my superiors, and that's what I tried to do. Yeah. And he'll tell you that if he talked about it, he'd tell you that today. I got to get to know him very well, and in my opinion, he would have been one of the last people on earth that you would have ever thought would have been ended up in the situation he was in because of his personality, his size, his position, his lack of leadership abilities, which he acknowledges. So if we were to fast forward to the invasion of Iraq and some of the images that we saw coming out of Abu Ghraib, again, I may be butchering the pronunciation. If you recall any of those images, did you see any parallels between the justification for the behavior and Lieutenant Callie's explanation of why his platoon did what it did? I see parallels in the lack of leadership. You've got to have adequate training and you've got to have adequate leadership. And in Vietnam at the time, of course, Abu Ghraib was a prison and, you know, they were trying to get information out of the prisoners. In Vietnam, the Quang Ai province, and in particular the area around Song Mi, was a free fire zone. That meant you could shell it, don't worry about who's there. You could drop bombs on it, you could fire artillery in it. And during the year 1967, MACV and what was known as ISICs were put together under Robert Comer. They redefined who the VCI or the Viet Cong infrastructure were. And the Viet Cong infrastructure, MACV put out a directive saying the Viet Cong infrastructures is to be terminated, is to be destroyed. And then they redefined who the VCI or Viet Cong infrastructure was, and they defined it as anyone who supports the Viet Cong. Well, in South Vietnam and in Quang Ngai province, almost all the peasants 
were against the DM regime and the Q regime and the Key regime. They thought they were corrupt and they were peasants. And in the countryside, everybody supported the Viet Cong because they helped them plant the crops and they helped them harvest the crops and they helped them fight against the Japanese when they were starving them to death. And so we inherited that. But as a policy matter, it was search and destroy. And as a policy matter, these folks became expendable. Wow. All right. I want to pivot. I was about to say pivot to something a bit lighter, but I don't know that it necessarily is. I want to talk about two of your more recent cases. One has been widely covered, Centoya Brown. And then if we have time, I'd like to talk a bit about the Joshua Bargery matter. But first, let's take up Centoya Brown, who I understand to have been convicted of homicide as a result of her killing a man who picked her up when she was being turned out as a teenager, as a prostitute, picked her up and she killed him in his sleep because according to what I've read, she feared that he was going to kill her. And she got the equivalent of a life sentence. Is that right? Am I oversimplifying? No, I think that's the basics. At age 12, she started being in trouble. And then by age 14 was out on the streets, and at age 16, she was being sex trafficked by a gang member, and he laced her with alcohol, cocaine, and sent her out to earn enough money so that they could get another hotel room. She was picked up at a Sonic by a 43-year-old guy who took her to his house, and he talked about weapons, and he talked about what a good shot he was, and that sort of thing. And she, according to what she thought, she was afraid, and she shot him and killed him. And she was then questioned by policemen who did not do what they're supposed to do with juveniles, but they questioned her, and she admitted killing him. And they recorded her on a telephone with her mama when she said, but mama, I executed him, you know, picked up a word from somebody. And then she was tried, convicted, lost her appeals through the system, the direct appeal, the appeal to the Supreme Court. And a friend of mine, close friend since law school, one of the people who lived in that house I was talking to you about, Charles Bone, called me out of the blue and said, I need to talk to you. Would you mind coming to Nashville? I drove to Nashville and we had dinner. And he handed me the DVD of the first Netflix documentary about Centoya Brown. It was uh, me doing life, the Centoya Brown story. I watched it. I had my staff watch it. I had my wife watch it. I was also intrigued by her past history and the history of her mother being 15 years old when she had Centoya and was drinking a fifth of liquor a day during that time. And I was intrigued by all the facts leading up to it. And in essence, I was talked into it by my staff to take on that project with Charles and some other really good lawyers who assisted us. And we were at one time or the other in nine courts over a period of 10 years. And we were still in court contesting the constitutionality of that statute that gave her life, which meant 51 years minimum when we were working on the clemency as well. Governor Haslam commuted her sentence to 15 years, which meant that she would be out within a year, which made the issue of the life sentence 
before our Tennessee Supreme Court moot and she's out and she is a walking, living, breathing miracle. And she is paying back society in multiple ways. She was recognized as a recipient of the National Juvenile Justice Award. She is smart, she is brilliant, she is working, and she is making a difference. And I was blessed to have some role in trying to assist her. She and her husband are wonderful people, just great, great people. That's remarkable. You know, one of the pieces that I've read says that Centoya thanked the Department of Corrections officials who helped her get an education and, quote, saw something in me worth saving. I mean, how uncommon is it? It's very uncommon. Right. For an inmate or, or soon to be detainee to thank the Department of Corrections for anything. I mean, just talk about humility. Use that word again. Well, the wonderful thing about it is the people who notice Centoya. Centoya, when I first met her, was brash, said whatever she had on her mind, but Connie Williams Seabrook was, at one time, she was the head of all of the Department of Corrections educational activities, and she asked for and took a demotion to become the principal at the Tennessee Women's Prison. And Centoya was there, and Lipscomb University has a program where it's called the Life Program, where they take 15 students from the college campus, and they take them to the women's prison, and they select 15 students from the prison, and they take classes together. They take one class per semester. Centoya asked her principal to get her in that, and she said, no, I'm not going to get you in that because you don't behave. You get all these write-ups. And then a few weeks later, she came back to her and said, Centoya, I tell you what, if you don't get a write-up, and she, the write-ups she got were not for bad stuff. It was mostly for her mouthing off, you know, like I want six pieces of bacon, not two, that kind of stuff. And she get written up for it. But Ms. Seabrook told her, if you will not get a write-up for six months, I'll see what we can do. And she got her into the life program. And Centoya first got her GED. And then she got her associate's degree taking one course per semester. We're talking about years here now. We're not talking about weeks or months. She got her associate's degree with a 4.0 average. And then she got her bachelor's degree with a 4.0 average while in prison. I mean, talk about resiliency, right? Just imagine what she could have done if she'd had a fair shake from the beginning. Today, she would have been considered a victim but when she was tried and convicted, she was called a prostitute at 16 years old. She was a sex traffic victim. But Centoya is brilliant. She made straight 4.0 average. And one of her professors was a lawyer with the attorney general's office who handled appeals from criminal cases on behalf of the state. He did not recognize her as one of his students, and she did not recognize him because she didn't know who was handling the state side of the case on her appeals. But when the Supreme Court denied her appeal the first time around, they sent her a copy of their opinion, and they sent him a copy of the opinion, and both of them recognized, holy crap, my professor's the one who keep me in jail right now. He's the prosecutor, and he recognized that's the smartest student I've had in my classes, and I'm the one who did it. And it changed both of their lives. 
His name is Preston Ship, great guy. And all of a sudden his view of the world changed and hers did too. There you go, you've done it again. That's a wonderful story. We're about out of time, but I do wanna do one thing. I would love to hear just a little bit about Joshua Bargery. And of course, a little bit won't do it justice, but my understanding is that is one of your more recent engagements, successful engagements, is that right? Yeah, over a 10 year period, I represented Joshua Hunt Bargery. He was facing the death penalty for the horrific death of an elderly couple in Lake County, Tennessee. We tried it the first time in 2000, I think 15. He was convicted, he didn't get the death penalty, but he was convicted of two premeditated murders and aggravated armed robbery. We took it up on appeal, the Court of Criminal Appeals reversed it. And by the time we went to trial this last year in April, on April 3rd, we were in our fourth venue, our third judge and our third prosecutor's office. So five and a half weeks, I had great help from my own staff, but also I got tremendous help from Penny White, who was a professor at the University of Tennessee, evidence guru, and retired Judge Joe Riley, who's been a friend of mine for 60 years. They helped in the trial were tremendous. The jury was out two hours and 30 minutes after five and a half weeks and acquitted him of all six charges. I was going to say, I just looked at the litany of assignments of error, and I'm kind of surprised that the state continued to prosecute the case. Local law enforcement were adamant that they had not done anything wrong, and so was the TBI was adamant they had not done anything wrong. Now, I won't get into all that, but essentially, we worked the case from 2015 through 2022, my office basically have the world's greatest investigator and she worked the case we did 350 interviews and we were able to establish that he didn't do it and he didn't so but before you let me go i want to say that the greatest joy in my life as a trial lawyer has been representing children catastrophically injured children to see their lives made a little bit more whole has been an absolute joy they become my kids. Yeah, I imagine. Well, I'm going to end on a very, very, very light note. Given that you live on an 80-acre farm, is that correct? That's about a, a little more than 100 acres, but that's close enough. Yeah. All right. So what is your favorite tractor? I have two. I have a orange tractor and I have a green tractor. Green tractors are John Deere's and orange tractors are now Kubota. I don't call it working on the farm. I do therapy. I'm either doing therapy with Dr. Kubota or Dr. Deer. <laughs> I got you. And, and you're not partial to either one, I take it? No, no. It just depends upon how big a job I need to do. <laughs> I got it. Well, listen, Houston, this has been a real treat. I could stay on here with you forever. I mean, I could spend another hour and a half just talking about Vietnam, but I understand there are other things that you have to do, as do I. Thank you. Just thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I hope to uh, take care. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.